0: Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, this morning, I am excited to be in a passage that is one of the passages that I really like in the Gospel of Mark. This is the story of a really good dad. A good dad with a really sick son. A son that was often beaten, a son that was battered, a son that was abused, a son that was was sick, but the dad was always there for his boy. No matter how bad it got for this little guy, the dad was always there. I mean, this dad literally saved this child's life multiple times. No matter how difficult things were and how long this thing drug on with him, this dad didn't give up. Now, we're sort of used to hearing stories about abusive dads, absent dads, dads who aren't there. It's refreshing to hear a story about a good dad for a change, isn't it? Especially when it's found right in the text of Scripture. Scripture. Now, before we dive into the story, and I introduce you to this good dad and his sick son, let me just give you a little running start as to where we were in the previous weeks. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we were actually studying the Transfiguration. In the Transfiguration, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They, they went up a mountain, and on the mountain, while Jesus was in prayer, was supposed to be a prayer meeting... Jesus was transfigured, the scripture says, right in front of those three guys, Peter, James, and John. Transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosize. It's like the Avengers. You know how the Avengers change from like a normal person to like an extraordinary person? This is like the Avengers plus a lot more. Because when Jesus was transfigured, Instead of just being in his humanity, God allowed for his divinity to also shine through his humanity and be seen. The scriptures say that his face was like the sun. It was bright and shining to the point you couldn't even look at it. His clothes were transformed to be completely white, white as light and flashing, pulsing like lightning. That's pretty checked out cool, isn't it? That's Jesus, not just in humanity, but in His humanity displaying His full divinity. That's what He's going to be like in the future when we're with Him. Well, after that brief transfiguration was over, Jesus with Peter, James, and John began to head down the mountain. And as they headed into the valley, that's where we we pick up the story that we're studying today. Now, we know that there's a lot of similarities to Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. And Moses, when he went up Mount Sinai, and he was also exposed to God's glory. Moses, when he came down Mount Sinai, he came down to the valley to find faithless people living in chaos. Remember that story in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus, when he comes down from the mountain, he comes down to find faithless disciples also living in chaos. Now, usually I read through the entire text and then we go through and study it piece by piece. But this is a longer text and I think maybe the best way to handle it is we just uh, study it verse by verse and read it through. Let the story unpack itself right in front of us as we study it. To give some form and structure to the story, um, I divided it up into three sections called Three Problems. There's the first thing we'll see is the problem of demons, then we'll see the problem of unbelief, and lastly, we'll see the problem of prayerlessness. So go ahead and take out your outlines, and we'll start on the top and just work our way through this story. First, the problem of demons. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. At this point, Jesus had only been gone roughly uh, five days to a week when he was up there on the Mount of Transfigurations. He comes back, and he finds scribes with the remaining nine apostles, and they are arguing. They're arguing with the apostles, and there's a great crowd gathered. You may wonder, like, why is there a crowd there? I think it's really simple. Remember junior high when there was going to be a fight at the bike racks? Once that gossip got around, the entire school went to the bike racks to see what happened with the fight. I think that's all it is. What we uh, find is that there's a fight between the scribes and the remaining nine apostles. Word gets out. Crowds come from everywhere because they want to see what's going to happen. It's like MMA, cage fight, apostles versus scribes. Let's see who wins. You know, no holes barred. Another question. How did these scribes even get here? You've been following along on our story, you know that what Jesus has done is he actually left the region of Galilee because he was constantly finding himself in fights with the Pharisees, scribes, and other religious leaders. So he went 25 miles north to the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is where he's at at this point. It's primarily a Gentile region, And what he's trying to do is spend time teaching his apostles before he dies. He only has a few months until he departs at this point. But apparently, Jesus has been gone for a while, and this is what I call the bounty hunter scribes. They eventually have tracked him down. They found him in the region of Caesarea Philippi. While Jesus and at least three of the apostles were not there at the moment, they did find the remaining nine apostles, so they began to harass them and just make their life completely irritable, sort of like what you see every day in American politics. I knew I'd get an amen on that one. Right. Now, at the moment, how are things going? Just to tell you, uh, the nine apostles are losing. They are losing miserably. They're sort of getting beat up by the scribes. And we'll see why they're getting beat up in a few moments. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've been in those kind of fights where things are not going well, that's when you wish you could fight tag team style. When you're on the bottom, you'd like tag your friend in, right? He could jump in and give you a break. Well, that's exactly what we have here. The nine apostles are losing. And guess who shows up to tag team in for them? jesus and he's gonna win so pick up in verse 15. and immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him so the crowd sees jesus and it's a leave the nine apostles run over to jesus and see jesus and i think the apostles are going yay finally a break and guess what? You're smoked because Jesus never loses a debate. Totally. Now, it says the crowd was greatly amazed to see Jesus. In Greek, this word amazed is a really strong word. It's like they are coming unglued with excitement to see Jesus. It's sort of like junior hires that go to a rock concert and they see, like the performer, what are junior hires like when they see that their favorite performer at a rock concert? Completely bananas. They're running up to the stage, you know, anything to do to be there. That's what the crowd is doing with Jesus. So this is like the celebrity Jesus moment. Everybody wants to be with him. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to be in the front row. And the disciples are quite thankful at that point because they were getting schooled. If you're studying these passages on your own and you're reading some commentaries in the background, you will see that some commentators have a different interpretation for this verse. What they say is that the reason the crowd was amazed is because when Jesus came down the mountain, he was still glowing. Sort of like Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai, he was still glowing. And I was really surprised to find the number of commentators who throw that in as a potential interpretation. I'm just going to tell you my answer, what I think. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think Jesus was still glowing. Because if he was still glowing, this would not be celebrity Jesus. This would be firefly Jesus. I mean, it really. But think about this. The reason I don't think he's glowing is, number one, it doesn't say it in the Bible. And if it doesn't say it, it's pretty risky to throw it in there. Number two, last week we saw Jesus told his um, three key apostles, Peter, James, and John, not to tell anybody about the transfiguration until after he rose from the dead. Well, if he came down the mountain and he's glowing, he's blowing his promise, isn't he? Because everybody knows something funky happened up there when they turn off the lights and it never gets dark. So, I do not think what is going on here is their amazement is because he's glowing. I think it's just simple. They're amazed because it's Jesus, and everybody wants to see him, and everybody wants to be with him. He is amazingly popular. The story continues in verse 16. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? Well, the scribes you think they would be the first ones to step up because they're the ones who have been harassing and, and haranguing the apostles. But they don't say anything. I think the obvious reason is because they know if they get into a debate with Jesus, they're going to lose with Jesus. So they keep their mouth shut. The apostles, they don't say anything. And I think that's simply because they're just too ashamed because they were getting schooled so badly. Thankfully, somebody steps forward. One man from the crowd. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able." Now we get to the details of the story. We have a father. This is the good father I told you about. He has a son who is demon-possessed. He traveled miles, probably, to find Jesus in this primarily Gentile region. He's brought his son, and he doesn't find Jesus. He finds the nine apostles. He says, guys, can you cast out this demon? They say, sure, and they try. And it ends up being their first entry in the exorcism fail blog. It doesn't work real well. You could just picture this. The first apostle's like, be gone. Didn't work. Be gone. Try again. Didn't work. Be gone. And the next guy jumps in and he tries it. And the next guy jumps in and he tries it. And the scribes who were there just to harass them, oh, they're loving every minute of this. You guys are failures. You guys can't do anything. You guys don't have any power. You see why the remaining three apostles are losing the debate? And they're losing it miserably? I mean, the scribes love this more than Nancy Pelosi loves a whistleblower. I mean, really, that's what's going on here. But while the scribes are so excited to harass and demean the, three, the nine remaining apostles. They're sort of missing the real point of what's going on here, which is the story of this father and his helpless son. Mark tells us that uh, this little boy was demon-possessed. The demon that had possessed him had made him mute. That is, he could not speak. He was mute and couldn't speak, not because of a physical problem, understand it was because of a demonic problem. The demon had made him mute so he could not speak. Later in the text, we'll see this demon also made him deaf so he could not hear. So here is a little boy who is imprisoned in his body as if he is in an aquarium, He cannot hear the words around him. He cannot speak to his parents and to others around him. He just watches the world around him. Later, we're also going to discover this boy is given seizures by this demon. Terrible, terrible seizures. Now, usually when we think of demon possession and how demons affect someone when they possess someone. We don't think of demon possession resulting in someone being deaf or someone being mute so they couldn't speak. We often think of demon possession like what we saw in Mark chapter 5 with the Gadarene demoniac. Remember him? Like demon-possessed crazy guy with supernatural strength and ran around howling at the moon at night and cutting himself with rocks. Sort of a Charles Manson type out there. That's what we're used to when we think about demon possession. And that is true. People who are demon possessed, some of them act that way. But as we start to trace our finger through the text of Scripture, what we find is that those who are demon possessed and demon oppressed sometimes have what looks like physical ailments and physical symptoms show up in their bodies. Not because of physical regions, but because of demonic oppression reasons. Most of us don't think that way. For instance, we just saw here that here is a little boy who can't hear and speak, not because there's anything physically wrong with him, but because the demon has done that in him. If we look at other passages of Scripture, we'll find Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, where we find a person who is blind. Nothing is wrong with them physically, But the demon has shut down their sight as a way of oppressing them. You look at Luke chapter 13 verse 11. You find a woman who is a cripple. She's crippled not because there's anything physically wrong with her, but the demon has crippled her. So the Bible tells us that sometimes when you have people who are dealing with physical sickness or physical suffering, it has a physical origin. But not every time. Sometimes things like blindness, loss of hearing, loss of speech, crippling, they could have demonic origins in and of themselves, just like this little boy. We'll see as we continue to study that this boy also has seizures. Seizures. Uh, Some people have pointed out that these look like epileptic seizures. And if they are epileptic type seizures, I want you to know they are not problems with this boy physically. The scriptures are clear that these seizures are demonically orientated and demonically originated. That's where the problem comes from. He doesn't need to be physically cured. He needs to be spiritually cured. Let's look at more what this demon is doing to this precious little boy. Mark tells us that the demon, when it would throw him into a seizure, would literally throw him onto the ground. There he would foam at the mouth. There he would grind his teeth and become rigid. If you're this little boy's father, it would be terrifying to watch heartbreaking to watch your little boy as the demon takes over his body and he grinds his teeth and he throws himself on the ground, no doubt hitting the corners of tables and smashing his head, no doubt hitting rocks or or hard things on the ground, bruising him, cutting him, beating him. Can you imagine what the father is going through when he sees this demon oppress his little boy? There's a parallel account of this in in Luke. And Luke, remember, is actually Dr. Luke. So he likes to write about these things more from a medical perspective. So I I like what he does when he describes this very same incident in Luke 9.39. He says this, And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. The word shattered in Greek is extremely strong words. It means to break something to the point that it is literally crushed into little pieces almost to the point of being in dust itself. How would you do that to a human being? Those of you who watch football maybe have seen somebody be completely shattered on the field. Have you ever seen where a receiver gets the ball and he's tackled not just from one side but another side? and maybe even a third side at full speed all at once. The guy's helmet is literally flipped off of his body, twirls in the air like a rag doll, lands on the field, and doesn't even move. Completely broken, shattered to pieces because of the hits. That's what this little boy is facing. When this demon takes over in him and he convulses and he throws himself on the ground and he flails about, he is shattered, broken, ruined, nothing to be able to get up. It says this also, that the demon will hardly leave him. This is happening all the time. We're not talking every six months. We're not talking every week the demon oppresses the boy this way. We're talking multiple times a day. His arms are bruised, and before the bruise even has a chance to heal, there's another bruise on top of it. His hands are cut. Before there's a chance for the wound to heal, the wound is torn back open again because the demon is beating him constantly. You can see why this dad is desperate, why this father's heart is completely broken. Matthew has another parallel account of this, and this is what Matthew says. He says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him. Could you see this father right there before Jesus? He's on his knees begging Jesus to do something to test the demon out of his little boy, his heart. Is broken as he watches his son suffer like this. In the parallel account of Luke, in Luke 9, 38, it tells us that this was the father's only child. No other children at all in his life. The total object of his affections is beaten, bruised, and bloodied. Now we see later on in the text that we haven't gotten to yet, we'll see that the, this demon's purpose was not just to beat and, and torment this boy, but this demon's ultimate purpose was to kill this boy and take his life. And that many times, this demon would throw him into fire or water to kill him. Think of it if you're this little boy. The demons made you mute, so you can't scream. The demons made you deaf, so you can't hear. But the demon takes over your body. And you find yourself grinding your teeth. And you're trying to fight it, but you can't. And the demon is going to take it. It's going to throw you. And you see the campfire only feet away. And your own feet slowly walking to the campfire. And there's nothing you can do because the demon has possession of you. And the demon throws you into the fire. Imagine the terror in that little boy's mind in those moments. But when he went into the fire, there's another pair of hands that went into the fire the hands of his father. The father who burned his own hands to save his little boy's life, pulling him out, not just once, but again and again. That dad came to his rescue. Sometimes the demon cast him into bodies of water intending to make him drown as they made him stiff and rigid. But there's always a second splash that followed. That was the splash of the father who dove in after him. Father who, who grabbed him, who, who saved him. Didn't matter what time of day it was. Didn't matter what time of night it was. Didn't matter if it was in the middle of the night. This dad was there to protect and look out and care for his demon possessed little boy. This is one good dad. Now, what's interesting is the apostles had tried to cast out this demon, but for some strange reason, they couldn't. You've been following along with our story in the Gospel of Mark. You remember that back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had given the apostles the ability to cast out demons, and they had done that, and that every other time before this, they had been effective. Look what it says back in Mark chapter 6, and they cast out, speaking about the apostles, many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick. But the question becomes, why were they successful then? But why weren't they successful now? Why couldn't they cast this terrifying demon out of this little boy? That brings us to the second point of our study, which is the problem of unbelief. Mark chapter 9, verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? When Jesus starts this with O, oh, by the way, that's not a customary greeting. That's what you call an exasperation. Jesus is frustrated. He's disappointed. He's sort of angry. He's like, guys, you know, how long do, am I going to be with you? And the answer is, at this point, not much longer. And then he says, how long am I to bear with you? Why do you guys keep getting this all wrong? Here we go again. You messed it up. The parallel account in Luke, Jesus says, oh, you perverted and twisted generation. Now, when we hear hear perverted, we think of something kinky. That's not what it means. He simply means, how could you guys get things so twisted in such a short amount of time? Guys, I was only gone five days and everything's falling apart. Why can't you get it right? Jesus is frustrated at this point. This is what Jesus says. Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. So Jesus assumes control. Bring the boy to me. But notice when the boy starts to come, the demon takes over his body, throws him to the ground, then he starts foaming at the mouth. The demon begins tormenting this boy right in front of Jesus. Now here's what's interesting. That's not usually the way demons react in front of Jesus. At least not in this gospel. Remember in Mark chapter 1, where there is the demon-possessed man in the synagogue? What did the demon-possessed man do when when he saw Jesus? He screamed in fear. Mark chapter 5, the Gadarene demoniac, even though he was possessed with a legion of demons, the demons brought the man in front of Jesus and the The man fell on his face, trembling in fear of Jesus. But not this demon. This demon is stubborn. This demon is obstinate. Jesus may have all authority over demons, but this particular demon does not want to recognize Jesus' authority over demons, which is probably why the disciples couldn't cast it out because it's a stubborn and obstinate demonic spirit. Now we go to verse 21. And Jesus asked this father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now, I have a question for you. Why did Jesus ask the Father this question? How long has this been going on? Like, what difference would it make? Say it was five years. Say it was five months. Would either of those have affected Jesus? No. He can handle it anyway. So, why would Jesus ask that question? Here's what I think Jesus is not just a power, Jesus is a person and as a person he cares he cares about this father he cares about this son it's not like i just want to kill you and get you out of here i'll heal him but i want to hear your story cuz i care about you folks i don't know what you're going through today Maybe you've got issues with your kids at home. Maybe you've got issues with your marriage. Maybe it's just work and, and finances. And God, I wish I could find somebody to listen who really cares. I'm going to tell you who that person is, who cares better than others and who wants to listen better than others. That's Jesus. Jesus cares about you just like he cared about this father the story continues the father says but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us and jesus said to him if you can all things are possible for the one who believes jesus says if you can that's not a question you notice that It's an exclamation. It's sort of like, are you kidding? You think this demonic power is going to be a problem for me? Absolutely not. All things are possible for those who believe. Jesus says, the reason your son has not been healed before this is not because God doesn't have the ability to cast the demon out of your son. No, it was a lack of faith in people coming to God to ask for the ability to cast the demon out of your son. The issue is not, does God have the power to heal? The issue is that the disciples were not coming to Jesus asking for the power to heal. The reason the disciples could not cast out the demon is quite honestly because they were too busy relying on themselves Rather than trying to go to God and rely on Him. They're relying on their own gifts and their own strength. Not trying to rely on Jesus and His strength. Remember, one of the purposes in this part of the gospel is that Jesus is trying to teach His disciples how to live when He is gone when they no longer can follow him by sight, and just like us, they're going to have to follow him by faith. He's telling them, there's going to be times in your life where even the gifts and abilities that I've given you are not enough, not strong enough. And in those times, you go to me for help. Well, at this point, the father gets it. Somebody needs to go to Jesus. Somebody needs to trust in Jesus. If they would just believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus' ability to this, all things are possible for those who believe. So the father says, the disciples may not be, but I will be. And look what happens right after this. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. So the father places his complete faith and complete trust in Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. But notice this. He recognizes it's not perfect faith. It's not perfect trust in Jesus to cast out his son. I believe, but help my unbelief. Because you know, sometimes my faith wavers. Sometimes my faith totters. Sometimes my faith doubts. The question is, when our faith wavers and our faith totters and our faith doubts, does that mean like, that's not going to be enough? What we find here is this father with his wavering faith, his faith that sometimes is in unbelief, it's enough. It's enough for Jesus to heal his son. Let's go to Mark chapter 9.25. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. The father has placed his faith in Jesus to heal his son. Not perfect faith, sometimes unbelieving faith, but he's placed it there. The crowds are starting to gather. Now, in the first half of this gospel, Jesus would try to gather a crowd before he did miracles. But in the second half of this gospel where we're at now, you know, Jesus doesn't want to necessarily gather a crowd because he's only focusing on training his disciples. So before the rest of the crowd gathers... Jesus commands the demon to come out of this little boy. But I want you to notice what happens. The demon does not instantly leave. What does the demon do even after Jesus has commanded him to come out? It convulses him terribly. In the Greek, it's a very interesting construction because it means the convulsions he goes through at that point are worse than he has ever been through. What a stubborn and obstinate demon. First, he's attacking this little boy right in front of Jesus. Now he's commanded to come out of the little boy, and he makes it worse than ever in front of Jesus. But then, in an instant, he's gone. And the little boy is on the ground, beaten, bruised, bloodied, looking lifeless completely exhausted, or as Luke said it, shattered by what this demon has done to him. Then what we find is what Jesus does in Mark 9, 27. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. It doesn't say it in the text, but this is my supposition. I think that beaten and bloodied boy, when Jesus grabbed his hand, I'd be surprised if Jesus didn't just give him a little extra life, a little extra health, a little extra energy, as Jesus pulled him off the ground. But then, I think what I like best is the way Luke tells us this ends up. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Can you picture that scene? Can you picture that father as he wrapped his arms around his little boy and held him as close as he could as that father's tears began running down his face as his chest began heaving as he's crying, heaving out of joy to have his son back. And the father wasn't just holding his son, but that little boy had his little arms wrapped as tight as he could around his dad. And for the first time since childhood, he heard his son's voice. And his son heard his dad's voice. it doesn't say what was said, but I suspect that some of the first words that this little boy said to his dad is, Dad, I love you. Dad, thank you. Thank you for saving me so many times. When the demon would throw me into the fire, you would reach your hands in, tearing me out and saving my life again and again. Thank you for holding me tight at night and not letting the demon hurt me and continue to destroy me. Thank you, Dad, for never, ever, ever giving up on me. It's a good dad. But if you think the gratitude of a son to a father and the joy of a father to have his son back is amazing, can you imagine the gratitude that both of them had in that moment to Jesus? Jesus, who cast the demon out, just simply a word? There's one big question that remains. What about the disciples? Why couldn't they cast out that demon before? That brings us to the third and final section of our study, which is the problem of prayerlessness. And when he had entered the house, the disi- his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In the Gospel of Mark, we've noticed that whenever you see that Jesus goes into a house with his apostles, we know it's for private instruction uh, to his disciples. That's always what happens. And Jesus says, Let me just tell you, the reason you could not drive it out is because when you couldn't do it on your own strength, none of you stopped and prayed and asked for my strength. That's it. The apostles had been with Jesus for years, two and a half years at this point. And as soon as Jesus was gone for a brief period of time, all they kept doing was relying on themselves. And it wasn't enough. But they had access to Jesus. They had access to His limitless power. It was all available to them if they had just stopped and prayed and the demon would have been gone. That brings us to our application. The application is this. When we find ourselves in situations that are more than we can handle, turn to Jesus in prayer instead of relying on our own strength. Remember The disciples had been given the gift of exorcism by Jesus, but they had always really exercised that gift by relying on their own strength, their own power. But there came a time when using their God-given gift in their own strength wasn't enough. And they needed to make sure they used their God-given gift relying on Jesus' strength and going to Him in prayer. The problem is they didn't do that because they were too proud to pray. They were not desperate. They were not humble like this father whose prayer was simple. It was only five words. I believe, help my unbelief. Not perfect belief, but it was enough. Just calling out to Jesus in prayer for his help. This applies to our life as well, folks. I don't know what you do for a living. Maybe you're an engineer. You solve problems for a living as an engineer. And when things don't seem to work, you just buckle down and try harder. I can do it in my own strength. That's what the disciples said. Didn't work. Maybe you're a life group leader. And you're in life group and somebody shares something and you say, well, I can figure this out on my own strength. And if I can't figure it out... Google can figure it out. But that's all about trying to do things in our own strength rather than what the Scriptures tell us here, which is stop and pray and ask for Jesus' strength, Jesus' wisdom, and Jesus' power. One other thing I want to mention to you. God places us in situations beyond our ability to teach us to pray so we learn to depend on Him. Did you ever think that God in his ultimate wisdom lined things up so that this father and this boy with this particularly stubborn demon would show up to the nine apostles when Jesus was gone? Like he lined things up so they could realize that their strength, their power, and their wisdom wasn't always enough. They needed to rely on him. Folks, this week, you're going to run into things that are beyond your normal God-given strength, wisdom, and giftedness. The question is: what are you going to do? Be like the disciples? Be too proud to pray and just try harder? Or are you going to be like this humble and desperate father and call out to God in prayer: I believe, I need your help. Help my unbelief and my friends that simple prayer is enough let's pray jesus we just want to confess that so many times in life we have become accustomed to trying to do everything in our own strength own wisdom and own power we're out of the habit of just taking a few minutes to pray as we face challenges and difficulties in life and 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 looking to you for that, we ask your forgiveness. I pray that this week we would be more like this humble, desperate dad rather than the prayerless disciples who are too proud to pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.